for joining us. We're excited to be here this morning. This is your first time. Thank you for joining us. Uh, we're going to continue a time of worship right now. Um, if you guys have any prayer needs, anything you need to lift up this morning, this is the time to do it. Just bring it to God. Let's clear our hearts, clear our minds. Let's continue to worship. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for all that you have done in our lives. And God, right now, we lay down our burdens. We lay, we lay down our pain, our hurts, our scars, and we give them to you this morning, Lord. That you will have your way with us. You will have your way in this room and that your will will be done this morning. We come broken, Father. Heal our hearts, heal our minds, and give us rest this morning, Lord. We thank you so much, Lord, and love you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.
take a seat. My name is Chase Elmore and I'm here to give a talk a little bit about money. Um, earlier this week I had an interesting situation happen. My wife is from France, born and raised, um, and we have a little boy and uh, she wants to get back home to um, show him off pretty much. Have all the family see him and yeah, be able to spend time. And so we're looking to buy some plane tickets and it was perfect. Like this, this ticket, like the perfect ticket came available like the price was right it was like overnight so that he could hopefully sleep and not like run up and down the aisles and be an insane little boy that he is but uh it was awesome and so we go ahead and we purchase it we're like stoked okay that's off like that's off the list of things to do and we had something interesting happen we we're watching our bank account it was like one dollar charge 67 dollar charge 380 dollar charge $75 charge, $75 charge, $75, and then like $800 charge. And how many of you guys have ever had that situation where someone is taking advantage of you and like there's an anger that comes out of nowhere and like overcomes you? So she's on the phone with this travel agency, this booking company, and she's talking to them, but the whole time I'm the one that's angry, like yelling through her to them about like how... I'm not even gonna tell you what I said, because it's in a, yeah, just, we don't need to do that. So, it was not good. It was not good. I had to apologize to Elle afterwards, because I started like getting angry with her, like she was the problem. But I, it's interesting, because 
we have that, right? We've had that where we feel like we're being taken advantage of, where someone promises something and doesn't quite deliver on that promise. I think so much of the time we approach church similarly. And when like someone comes up and say, okay, it's time for the tithe, we're like, mm, I think you just want my money. And that's fair, because some of the churches, I can't speak for all the churches, but some of the times we have these negative circumstances and situations where we're just like, you're asking for something but not wanting to deliver in return. Am I the only one that has had this issue or this problem? Okay, I'll just talk to myself there. We're good. Um, but so much of the time, this is why like, I'm so grateful for this church. It's because the cool thing that has happened is when I got married, I don't know if there are any married people in here or if you're going to get married. This is something crazy that happens. When you like pledge your heart and your life to someone, guess what follows? Your wallet. Who does that? Like, why is that a thing? But when you actually commit your heart and your soul to somebody, your wallet follows, right? See, the thing about church is, we're not after your money. If this is not, like, if you are not convinced that this is a good investment of your money, please keep your money. What we are after and what Christ is after has always been your heart. When we get that, it's game over, right? Like, my wife can ask me for things, and <laughs> she doesn't always get them, but... She has the availability to my wallet. Why? Because she is more important than that item. More important than the cash. And what I love about this church is it is a great investment. We had this whole week long, we had students and kids from all over the valley coming. Whether in this church, we have some from foster care. We had a kid that was homeless in LA up until Monday. Like 10 or 11 years old. Is that insane? That is, yeah, that just blows my mind. But they got to come, and for a week they got to hear that whether they have a family here on earth or not, there's a family that loves them, that they can call home to a place like this, that they can get loved on and maybe just forget their issues for a couple of hours. See, this place has my heart, and I know that that's the outcome, so the money's not even a question. It isn't. Same with my wife, like this is the heart of the thing. This is what we want to communicate to you guys. We don't want just your money. We want an investment where it's like, this is my home and I see the difference it's making, so I'm gonna fund it however I can. Like I believe in a day that like is coming where people aren't like, oh dang it, how much do I have to give? Is 10% still the rule? Is that, okay, cool. It's like, no, how much can I give? Like how can I raise more money to fund what is happening at Journey Church? So many cool things are happening. I got just a week before that, I got to a, go to a camp of um, junior high and high school students. And I got to see kids' lives transformed before my eyes. And I wanna say thank you guys. For the last two weeks, you guys have funded the, the ability for kids to have an encounter with God. Like $375, that is steep. Like that's a lot of money. And some of you guys came forward and were happy to give it. And I just wanna say thank you so much. And as the ushers come forward, I'm going to pray over this, that God would bless it, that our hearts would be committed more than our wallets. Like, that would just be an overflow of our gratitude for what God is doing through this church. I thank you, Lord God, for today. I thank you for what you're doing. I thank you that you trust us and allow us to be a part of it, us broken, screwy people who get mad at the silliest things. I thank you, Lord God, for today. I pray that you'd bless the offering and bless these people even more. In your name we pray, amen. As the buckets are going around,
Can you guys do me a favor? Can you look at the screens? I want to show you guys what has happened this past week in the life of Journey Church. So go ahead and take a look. kids camp. Man, we don't even have a blade of grass and they can do all that right here, guys. I'm, I'm so excited about what we were able to accomplish because of your generosity and all the involvement, all the people who got to come and help and serve and work, <clears throat> man, to, to reach these kids. Um, it was just amazing to watch, as, as Chase said. And what I, what I love about Journey, and this is our core value. I mean, this is just who we are. It's, it's not true of a lot of churches. I've been, I've been a part of several. And but our heart is that we experience the life of God and that it changes us, that we literally go into that life um, wide open just for whatever God wants. And then as we're being transformed, as we're being changed, that we take that to the people outside. Jesus was so big about taking care of widows and orphans and those in need. And I love that Journey has a very literal response to that call to go into all the world and preach the good news. I love that we do stuff like this. So well done, Journey family. Well done, Journey kids. And uh, yeah, partnering with the Forest Home Camp. Good idea. It worked out well. Brianne was saying there was a whole lot of kids in here that just, you know, responded to invite Jesus into their lives as well as um, 
just the kids that have been a part of our church family that are just continuing to grow. Super. Hey, well, we're continuing our series. Um, last two lessons will be uh, this week and next for our Bottle Up series. It's a longer one, but I don't want you to miss next week. It's probably my favorite talk as we summarize and bring to light all the stuff that we've been talking about. But today I want to talk about um, something that's going on inside. I was raised um, in, a, in a family that we, we lived in a little farming community, but I had a grandpa who lived in Lindsay, California, a little bitty hick town nobody's probably ever heard of. That's where I was born. And my grandma and grandpa lived um, at the kind of the base of the hills there in that Porterville region. What we would love to do when we were kids is we would love for summer times to go over to grandma and grandpa's house, and we would sometimes get there like a Friday afternoon, and grandpa loved to fish. My grandpa was a simple guy. He, he didn't have a lot of what people would consider really successful, worldly, you know, symbols. Didn't have a big fancy house. He had a nice, tiny little two-bedroom home. He didn't have brand new cars all the time. He, he was just a really simple guy. He worked really, really hard, and he provided for his wife and two little girls, and you know, that was him. But he loved Jesus with all his heart, and he was so invested in walking in the ways of Jesus. And I learned from uh, a man who was really, really good at this. And I saw a life that was just really impacted. But I loved going to Grandpa's house. And what Grandpa would do is he'd take us fishing. And fishing was so cool when you're a little kid. It's like something, you know, who, who does that? So he'd take us to the lake. My Grandpa was a bait fisherman. And he actually had in his garage, I mean, in his backyard, um, a great big refrigerator that the doors were off of it, of course. And he had filled it with dirt. And it was kind of, it was a worm farm. Anybody ever heard of a worm farm before? I mean, I'd never heard of a worm farm, but we go out there, and Grandpa would give us our little can, you know, it's like an empty can, a coffee can, and we'd go out there, and we'd, you know, dig through the little worm, and he had different kinds of worms for different kinds of things. He had, like, you know, red worms, and these big old giant ugly earthworms, and he'd give us a can, and like, okay, let's get our worms ready for tomorrow morning. So we'd go, and we'd pick out, you know, the best worms we could find, and put them in our little can, and then the next, we'd go to bed, and the next morning before the sun even rose, Grandpa was up fixing pancakes. And he made his own recipe. I mean, he, he did it from scratch, and it, it was just the most amazing pancakes. And then we were on our way to the lake, and by the time the sun was just coming up, man, we were getting our, our stuff ready. And very early on, um, I learned that to catch a fish, you have to think like a fish, which is pretty simple. We learned that for a fish, life is all about maximum appetite gratification for minimum effort. They like to have the, they like whatever it is to be brought right to them, and they like to eat. For a fish, life is see a bug, want a bug, eat a bug. So your job was to get the bug in front of the fish. And for a fish, man, you just think about it, rainbow trout, they, they never really reflect on where their life is headed. I've never, I don't know, but I don't, I don't think little bass girlfish look at their boyfish and say, I feel like I'm more into this relationship than you are. I feel like I'm more committed. I mean, sometimes I feel like you're just into me for my fins and not really all me. I mean, I don't, I don't know if that happens, but fish usually don't do stuff like that. They're just like a collection of appetites, right? I mean, fish is a stomach, a mouth, and a couple eyes. That's a fish. And, and the, I was surprised, even when I was a little kid, I was kind of shocked at how dumb fish are. I was like, hey, fish, swallow this. Yeah, it looks like a meal, but it's not. It's like 
so tempting. It's juicy, and look at it wiggle. It's going to be so yummy. It's a worm with a hook in it, and you're going to think it's going to feed you, but it's not. It's going to trap you. In fact, I don't know about you, but if you ever look closely you know, at this, you, you think about it, it's like, hey, why don't they look at that and like swim up to it and like, hey, there's something in this. This isn't just a worm. That's a hook. And, and you know, once they're hooked, it's for good. That's game over. But fish don't learn that stuff. I, I mean, fish never notice. And, and this is something they've been failing for years and years and years. Fish have been doing this, the same thing. They see the hook and the, and the worm, and they bite it. They see it, and they bite it over and over again. You'd think they'd notice the hook, see the line, that somebody would say, swim around and say, no, don't eat it, don't eat it. It's a trap. But they don't. And as, I find it ironic because fish actually accumulate, they gather together in groups, and they call them a... You've been in school your whole life, and you don't learn? I mean, this, you live in a school, and you can't get this stuff. I mean, I'm so grateful. You think about that. They're not learning. How dumb are fish? Aren't you glad people are so much smarter? Aren't you glad this never happens to humans, that they do stupid stuff over and over and over, and like there's bait, and there's a hook, and it's right there, and they're like, oh, uh-uh, I know what you are. I've done this before. That hurts. I mean, we're so much smarter, except when you have a governor who uh, makes this really bright guy in, in a large state, makes his reputation for being really, really hard on the prostitution circle and prosecuting and going after these rings, and then find out that he gets caught up in his own sting because he was one of their clients. And then you have a governor who comes into his place, right behind him, his successor, who has to literally come out in public because of all the, up, the outcry. He has to come out in public and say, well, you know, there were some indiscretions my wife and I each had before we took office, just as a preemptive strike. He's got to warn everybody, oh, you know, I kind of had some stuff in my past. Well, and maybe there's that famous pastor who became even more famous by preaching really, really hard against sexual sin, only to find out that in his private life, he was just a mouth and a stomach and a pair of eyes for sexual things that were inappropriate. Maybe, maybe it's more than that. Maybe you, you think about, this hasn't happened to real people except for the husband with a sexual addiction that goes on for years and years and years. And if he stays really, really quiet, his wife will never know. But he lives with the shame, and he doesn't feel like he can ever be close to God. And he never feels like his wife will ever truly know him. Or the wife who feels like she's in a loveless marriage, and the emotions are never really satisfied. So she makes a connection with somebody outside of the marriage that seems to fulfill a little more. It's just emotional. It's just emotional. It's just a friendship until it's not, and then their world blows up. It never really happens to us because we're smarter than that. We never really bite that hook because we see it for what it is, right? I wish. Turns out some people have really the same problem. Aren't you glad you don't? Aren't you glad it's them and not us? Aren't you glad it's somebody else and not you that makes really bad decisions over and over again? It turns out that that's just our story. That Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount was kind of helping people to see the world as God had intended it to be. He was helping to peel back the layers of all what they've experienced and try to show them life as God sees it, life as God intended it. And so he begins to unwrap some of the things that, that get their hooks in us. 
And he begins to put the picture out there for people so they can see there's a life he's contrasting. There's a life with God, and there's a life apart from God. There's a life when we choose God as our ultimate authority and trust him, and there's a life when we choose ourselves as our ultimate authority and we trust our appetites or our desires or what we think we can get away with. And Jesus opens this conversation, and he does this through the thing we call a Sermon on the Mount, and he starts breaking it down, and he's just beginning to explain what life in God's new plan for humanity will look like. And I love it that when we find this Sermon on the Mount, we're like, oh, yeah, that's that spiritual talk where he talks, you know, and it's like, oh, blessed are the poor and the meek and all that and the salt of the earth, light of the world and all those things. But did you know right off the bat one of the things Jesus goes to first he said, well, let's talk about sex. And people in that culture have been like, whoa. But the real question he's getting at here is, hey, wait, hey, let's get real for a minute. Who's got a problem when it comes to their sexuality and their fulfillment and their desires? And so in Matthew chapter 5, our text today is Matthew 5, 27, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said this, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. Okay, and, and I'm going to pause right there. You've heard it said. Well, how had they heard it said? Because he's speaking to this Jewish audience, and the Jewish audience has spent their life hearing this teaching. Because this was in the Ten Commandments. It's in the Torah. It's in the writing of the Levitical you know, priests that had passed down all these rules, Moses and everybody else. It's been expounded upon for their entire lifetime. They memorized these texts as children. And Jesus is saying, hey, listen, listen, listen. You know this, right? You've got it memorized. You've heard it said, you should not commit adultery, but... And here's where Jesus goes into his rabbi mode. And as we've mentioned before, rabbis in the first century were religious teachers. They were Jewish teachers who would take the Torah or the prophets or the wisdom literature and they would interpret it for the people so they could get their arms around it. And they would call that interpretation or their teaching their yoke. That was his yoke. Well, Jesus is about to hand them God's yoke, God's interpretation on God's words. He said, here's what I tell you. All right, you heard it said, don't commit adultery. Here's what I tell you. Anyone who looks at a woman in order to lust after her has already committed adultery in his heart. Stop. What? You've heard it said, Ten Commandments, the Torah, You've heard it all your life. Don't commit adultery. Which quite literally means if you're married to this person, you can't have sex with this person or any other person. When you're married, your sexuality is bound up with that person for life. That's a covenant you've made before God, and God treasures it, honors it, and blesses it. And he's saying, so if you do anything else outside of that, it's adultery. And that's like, oh, okay, um, yeah, we know that, but... If what, what Jesus is getting at, adultery, it literally means deceit, it means unfaithfulness, it means catastrophic damage, it means heartbroken, it means family destroyed, it means all of this. It violates God's will because it destroys God's people, and that is what some of you have experienced. Some of you have been there. You, a spouse, a parent, a child, a friend, a family member has gone this path and you have seen what it does and you have seen hopefully have seen through somebody else that this is a worm on a hook that's going to catch me 
and destroy me. And Jesus recognized that there's some people here who think, oh, well, I've never committed adultery. I've never gone through that act of cheating on my spouse. So I'm good. And then Jesus says, well, wait, wait, I'm going to break this down for you a little bit. Um, that, that you think you're good. You think you're all righteous. As a matter of fact, a lot of these people, they felt so good about themselves that they categorized themselves as the people of God. They put their little you know, terms around, this is who I am. And then they had categories for everybody who was outside of that. And people who had sexually fallen short of God's plan were called sinners. They had a whole category. And so when you read in the scripture, it talks about Jesus was accused of hanging out with sinners. This is a category in which they're talking about. There were the good people, God's people, the moral people, and then there were sinners. The outsiders, the ugly, the wicked, those who got caught doing bad stuff. And Jesus is trying to break down their smug, self-righteous judgment and pull away the, the veneer over their own hearts and say, wait, 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 wait. Let's look inside you. It's easy to go, them, them, him, her, that. But he's saying, what's going on in here? That's what God's interested in. <clears throat> so this is Jesus' exposure that those broken people aren't there, aren't the only broken people the broken people are everywhere. It's everyone. And their brokenness is still affecting their sexuality, as it always does. And they still need God, as we all do. And Jesus wants to get beneath the surface, so he illustrates this by talking about how these folks who thought they were okay are still capable of violating God's plan for their life Still getting the hook in them, even though they don't go out and commit adultery outside of marriage, and they're capable of doing that by a simple thing called the look. Now, maybe you've seen the look. Maybe you've been like at a restaurant, and the waitress happens to be fairly attractive, and you happen to notice that there's a guy who happens to notice her, and he's sitting there with his wife. Maybe you've seen this somewhere outside, and maybe it's been at a park or at a fair or something. You've seen somebody notice somebody and maybe because they're very attractive or because they're dressed in a way that catches people's attention and you see them kind of give one of these and you probably notice somebody has been captured by their eyes and maybe you've seen that hey they can't take their eyes off them and they're kind of following their eyes are just kind of following them around they may be a little coy they may be a little bit under control but you can see they're watching and you know what I'm talking about of course, you've never done this yourself, but that for that other person that you've seen that's done this, for that somebody else, that, that happens, right? This person, this husband, this man is not looking at that woman as a person or as somebody's wife or somebody's mother or somebody's you know, daughter or a, as a woman created in the, God, in the image of God. He's not seeing her as that. He's seeing her as body parts. He's just using her for his own personal visual gratification. He's watching her get a little surge of sexual energy and excitement. And he thinks nobody notices. But of course, somebody notices, like you or like his wife. And wives, I know, you're no dummies. You've seen the look, and you know how men are. They're visual. They are visual from birth on through. They're visual creatures. They're kind of like fish. See a, see a woman... Want a woman? Anyway, just saying. They're kind of like, I mean, we just have some really basic, basic appetites. And 
not saying that's bad. I'm just saying that's just reality. And so you've seen it. Maybe you, and women, you're not immune. You're not immune. You've been there. You've seen it. You've experienced it. The attention that you could, you know, oh, wow, that you give to somebody who's really, really fine, attractive, hot, whatever you call them. And some of you, you know, this is interesting because he's saying that look is so common that everybody standing here probably knows what I'm talking about. That look. That look. And Jesus said, some of you, you think you're okay on the sexuality front because you've never actually gone and thrown your body in, you know, to this relationship thing. But you're still doing the look. And it's important distinction here because what I want you to be sure and understand is that when it comes to human sexuality and it comes to attractiveness, um, God is not against attractiveness. And I know some cultures, they want to help people so much that they literally say, don't ever let anybody see you except your spouse. I'm not down in other cultures. I'm just saying that the point is that the problem doesn't go away just because you don't see everything. Jesus is talking about a reality here that it's like, hey, you guys all know what this is. You are attracted to beauty because that's how I made you, God would say. Did you know your sexuality was not a surprise to God? He didn't wake up like, what is that? What are they doing? I mean, God's like, God was not disgusted by the, Adam and Eve having like the first exploratory thing in the garden. He's like, like, what? Who? Angels, quick! You know, it's like, God designed this, all right? God wove it into your, your humanity. It was part of the essence of what it means to be human, to procreate, to work with God in creation. And it wasn't just for creation. It was to be enjoyed. It was a beautiful thing. It was a gift that God dreamed up for people in covenant relationship. It's his plan. And what God did not mean for us to do is to... The, the rabbis actually, and there were a certain group of rabbis that had this thing that they would never look at a woman, and they basically uh, called them the black and blue rabbis because they made a point to close their eyes whenever they were walking near a woman, and they'd run into stuff, and they were always black and blue. And so they were literally like, I will never look at a woman. And, and God didn't mean for us not to notice beauty. That's not the point. As a matter of fact, I mean, God has made some beautiful creatures, and it's just fun it's a delight to say god man way to go that's beauty but there's like a look that's a glance and saying oh man that's a beautiful person and then there's a look that's saying i want to look more i'm going to look closer i'm going to look there i'm wondering what that person looks like without that where are those x-ray glasses i was supposed to get in my cheerios box as a kid you know what you're like when it goes beyond just like a glance and appreciation, you know, it goes to something else. But the glance and the idea of, hey, this is a beautiful person. I appreciate what God has made is not sin. It's when it goes to someplace else. It becomes a gratifying thing for you to undress them or stare at them or kind of just consume them with your eyes. And there's an important difference there. You're hardwired for the appreciation of beauty and sexuality as part of you. But you were not meant to allow your mind to take that places where it's meant to be between you and your spouse. So question, when, at what point do you stop noticing sexually attractive people? Guys, when you're dead. I'm just saying, I've seen 92-year-olds that are like, woo, you know, kind of looking at, at, give me my spectacles, you know, because when do we stop doing this? When we die. Why? Because it's wired into us. Jesus is talking about 
looking for the purpose of lusting, consuming. And by the way, Jesus isn't just talking about a sexual thing here, but when he talks about lust, lust in this instance is sex. But John goes on to talk about lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. In other words, all those things we desire to consume in order to better me at the expense of them or to just take because I want. And it's a basic appetite I want to have fulfilled. You think, man, there's, there's all kinds of lust. But he's saying any man who looks at a woman lustfully and they're thinking, oh, man, that means I'm not supposed to have any sexual attraction at all? No. No sexual desire, and, I, and I'm like, I could never do that. I wouldn't want to do that. It's not how God made us. Jesus isn't talking about looking with desire. He's looking, talking about looking with the purpose of consuming, lusting, and it goes on. Excuse me. And I'm allowing my mind to wallow in it. Maybe it's become habitual. I bet some of you have had this pattern so much that you don't even recognize when you're doing it. And maybe your wife or girlfriend or somebody else draws your attention to it. Dude, what are you? Th- you're, you're a little obvious, you know, and you're not even aware. And Jesus' concern here is not just about adultery. It's not even just about adultery and the look. And please understand this. Jesus' concern is all of the ways that God's will is not being done as it is in heaven in your life. When your life is not lining up with God's ways and the ways of heaven, he's concerned about that. Because what we don't understand sometimes, our hearts are broken by sin and Jesus wants to set us free. What God designed us for in the beginning was a life of flourishing and beauty and thriving. And when we get away from that, we get death. Death of marriage, death of relationship, death of trust, death death of all of those things, death of natural desire. There's deaths that come every time we sin and separate ourselves from God's way of doing things. And Jesus is drawing attention to the fact that, hey, here's an area that we can all understand where where it comes to your sexuality, where the plan that God had for us has gotten so askew that you don't even realize you're broken. You're not even understanding what God intended this for. Therefore, sexual problems in everybody are obvious, and we all need help without exception. I'm going to give you a few ways in which our broken sexuality manifests itself. And I'm going to ask you if you identify with any of these or these kinds of sexual brokenness. There's the kind of sexual brokenness we just mentioned. That's the look where somebody just has to constantly feed their visual habit. They become addicted to looking in whatever places. Then there's the problem of sexual harassment, crude language, inappropriate humor, um, wrong behavior, touching, doing what you're not supposed to, right? Then there's the problem of treatment of people who do not attract the look, people who get overlooked and undervalued. Here's what you need to understand. Research has shown this over and over and over, that that people who are attractive literally get better treatment in life. They get better service in restaurants, at bars, they get better treatment in their jobs, they get quicker promotions, they get recognized more uh, because, because they are beautiful or sexy or whatever. And what we discover is that people that don't fit into those stereotypes often get overlooked. And of course, 
it's even possible to complain about that because then you have to admit there's something wrong with me. I'm a loser. I, I'm a reject. I don't, I'm not attractive. And the problem is um, that's not what God wanted us to, to judge each other by. But there's a problem of ju judgmentalism. When I regard myself as superior to those people with sexual problems and sinners over there, there's a problem defining my identity by my ability to attract the look. There's a lot of people that they spend a lot of time doing whatever it takes to get the look, to have other people, and their identity is wrapped up in their ability to turn heads, to turn faces, to get attention, to have be looked at. And I'm telling you, this, this is a trap, and it involves lots of shopping and other things. And the, just be honest, the older you get, the harder it is to cover it up. It gets more and more costly and more and more difficult. Then there's a the problem of getting jealous when people are attractive and get that attention and you don't. Then there's the problem of millions of hours and billions of dollars devoted to porn sites and movies and strip clubs. There's a problem of sexual conflict and frustration in marriage because there's a, you know, maybe a, I don't know, disproportionate interest in one and, you know, lesser in another or whatever. Um, then there's a the problem of people who appear to be all together on the surface and yet they live with regrets and sexual frustration and tension and all these things. Folks, we got problems. Did you know that the, that the most common purveyors of pornography right now, I read a statistic this week, the ones who are most likely to be looking at porn, 12 to 17-year-olds. We're talking children. 12 to 17-year-olds are the ones who are most often viewing porn. We've got problems, and Jesus knows that. And if anybody here has wrestled with your mismanaged sexuality, um, man, as a matter of fact, if everybody, if anybody who's ever mismanaged your sexuality or struggled in that way were to vanish today, I mean, I'd be all alone. Just me by myself. Just the pastor. So it's like the pastor who said, everybody who wrestles with lust, may your tongue stick to the roof of your mouth. Like, what? <laughs> you know, it's like, it's all of us. It's all, there is no us and them. There is no our circle, their circle. There is no insider, outsider. There is everybody. And Jesus is saying, if your heart has led you to places where you consume what is not yours or is not right or is not God's plan, I'm talking to you. I'm talking to you. All right? So who's got a problem? Everybody's got a problem because God's plan is for the kingdom to be lived out on the earth. And if that's not what you're doing... He said, then you need to tune in. Here's what, here's what he said. He goes on. He gives some advice. Ridiculous, extreme, but listen to his words. Verse 29. If your right eye causes you to, okay, you got a good eye and a bad eye? Okay, well, if your good eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now, let me just ask, does that seem a little extreme? Is anybody taking this? I don't see any people with, you know, I don't see any pirates out there, you know, the hook and the cover on their, I mean, that's maybe, this seems a little extreme, right? One minute he's talking about lust, okay? We're with you. The next minute he's talking about mutilation. And we're like, wait. He's talking about hell, eternal damnation. And, and it, what's he saying? 
It's kind of like he's shifting without a clutch. I don't know, but he, he just jumped from one thing to another, and I don't, and I'm just sitting here in the middle. I don't know where he went. What, why is he talking about hurting myself? Because Jesus knows what he's talking about. I'm going to break this down. We have to begin by trying to understand what he's talking about when he talks about heaven and hell. Because for a lot of people, heaven and hell are these caricatures, these cartoon images of like heaven is like clouds where one day you earn your wings and you float up and you play a harp or a you know, violin or, you know, I, I love that old Bob Larson you know, joke. It was like, welcome to heaven. Here's your, you know, here's your uh, harp. And then there's Satan down below. And he's like, welcome to hell. Here's your accordion. Sorry. Anyway, <laughs> that's not it. That's not hell and heaven. When, when we're talking about heaven, the kingdom of heaven in the Jewish mind was a very real thing. I mean, it was absolutely real. It was as real as the nose on your face, but it, it's, it's not some kind of dumb picture of just forever bliss somewhere out in the galaxy. It's a physical and spiritual reality that we can live in, and it's, and it's open to everyone, and it, it's actually open now. It's a physical, spiritual reality. The kingdom of heaven is any place where God's reigning, where God's ruling. Heaven, in the in basic, in the minds of the Jewish people, Jesus' time was heaven is where God's in charge, where what God wants to be done is being done, where what God wants to happen is happening, because that is where human flourishing is, that is where life is, that is where joy is, that is where all the good things and if you ever sat and watched a sunrise or a sunset, if you ever just watched, looked at the ocean, if you ever been in the mountains and just sat by a stream and just look at that beauty and you're like, oh my gosh, who dreamed this up? Where does this come from? I mean, I, I just can't believe this was just a random collision of atoms that created this thing that causes my heart to just delight and feel alive. I, I feel like there was purpose and meaning in it. I feel like there's a good God who's created very good things and he wanted us to experience them and something's broken. Thus the mosquitoes. But just saying that just as there's a kingdom where God's rule is in effect, where people submit willingly, where life is as God wants it to be, and that is the place of greatest joy. That's why they call it heaven. It's where God's having his way. This is why Jesus tells us to pray in Matthew 16. Pray, God, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We want up there to come down here. We want your rule to be in humanity because we want to experience life. We're tired of the cheap substitutes. We're tired of the worms with hooks in it. We want real life. And we want to know what it was meant to be when you created humans and put them in the garden and told them to go out there and take dominion and live in joy and delight and experience all you made. We want to know what that means. Is, folks, can I just tell you, that's why Jesus came. Jesus came on the renewal project. He's begun the renewal of all things. Jesus brought heaven to earth. Literally, heaven, we realize, through Jesus, is a sphere of God's influence. And it's actually invaded earth. It's where God's will was done 100% of the time. In Jesus, the kingdom of heaven was exposed, where this is what it looks like. Lives are set free. People that are blind can receive sight. Those who are bound up are broken. The chains are broken. It's like this is what happens when the reign of God begins in our lives. 
This is humanity renewed, restored, right with God. It's a sphere of life where the kingdom of heaven actually comes down and, and it's available. And not only is there a sphere where all is as God wants there to be, it to be, there's also a sphere where all is not as God wants it to be. Where all is not according to God's plan, God's rule, God's desire. It's opposed to God. The Bible's word for that is hell, where it is devoid of God and his rule and his ways. That's hell. And some people are living it now, but it is a physical reality, a spiritual reality, just as much as earth or as the physical plane you feel today and see today. Jesus talked about it as it were an eternal destination for all people who decide against the rule and reign of God, don't want his presence, his direction, his leadership, or his plan. They want their own way of doing things, and this is called hell, and you're welcome to it. He said, please don't go there. Please don't live there. Please don't experience that. But just as the kingdom of heaven breaks into the earth, has a physical manifestation, so does hell. We can see it all around us. There's a literal reality. Jesus talked about this quite a bit. He was serious about its implications. It's eternal destiny somewhere. The idea of hell is not some cartoon with you know, demons with pitchforks and pointy tails and red suits. Hell is that sphere where God's will is rejected, God's rule and presence is evacuated, and there is nothing but darkness and hopelessness and loss. And just as the kingdom of heaven can invade the earth, so can the kingdom of darkness and hell. Like in a concentration camp. Just picture that, the, the, the loss of hope. How, how do we even describe it? We don't even have words. And so we come up with phrases like, man, it was hell on earth. War is hell, right? I mean, we just have these ideas that, oh, we just, we don't even know how to phrase it. It's so bad, we, we don't talk about it. So we talk about the hellish conditions. A few years ago, Amnesty International, you may read about the agency that does good around the world, but they were right, they, there was an article that they put out discussing what they were finding in many of the eastern countries, countries in some sub-Saharan, uh, sub-Saharan Africa where they wrote this. It's called, When Did Rape Become a Military Weapon? And what they were finding, what they were discovering is that they're not talking about a few rogue soldiers going out there and raping people in their, under their authority, a banner of authority. He was saying, they were they writing that they were basically, this was a strategy adopted by their generals and commanders, that their soldiers, soldiers were actually put under the power of the country and the license was given to rape and pillage as part of their conquer and conquest. I mean, we're talking about like ancient times, we're talking about like cavemen kind of stuff, where whole villages of women were just rounded up and children on up to old women were raped and abused. Hundreds of thousands of them. And this was a strategy deliberately enacted by the military leaders to devalue, destroy community, to terrorize, to subdue this culture, whole people groups. Women younger than my daughter were being tortured and raped, sexually abused by men younger than my sons. And this was a strategy enacted for military purposes. And I just, man, I read that and I'm thinking, God, I don't even know how you let the earth go on. I mean, you talk about hell, people. You talk about torment, where we read all the time daily about somebody rounded up for child sexual abuse or child, you know, 
or torture or having somebody in a closet or a basement or starving somebody. We read about this stuff. Folks, let me just tell you that unbridled doing whatever I want, when somebody thinks they can be free to do whatever they want in life, this is the result where we get worse and worse and worse. Our appetites, they degrade. They get less and more and more weird and twisted, and that's what happens when the kingdom of darkness reigns. When there is no God, there is no true north, there is no black and white, there is no absolute, then it's every man for themselves, and this is what it disintegrates into. And that's why Jesus said, there's an experience called hell, and you're getting a taste of it on this earth, but there's a place where all of that gets bundled up and put away, and it's, it's forever. And this is Jesus' point, not that you ought to mutilate yourself if you find yourself lusting, because, of course, everybody would be stumped and blind. You know, it's like that was, that's not his point. The problem with human, is my, my take at least, the problem with human beings is not our hands. The problem with human beings is not our eyes. The problem with human beings, as we've been saying in this whole series, is our hearts. What we allow our hearts to form around, what we allow our hearts to attach to, what we allow our hearts to love and to develop affection towards shapes us. It becomes us. It defines us. And Jesus was saying in the new reality of this kingdom, your heart must be shaped and defined and connected to the reality of God or you have no hope of your heart ever being pure and right. And your eyes and hands will be living it out. One, one of his points is of contentious with the religious leaders of his day was they're all about polishing the outside. Get the outside together. Do the right thing and just clean up your act. And, and God's, Jesus come along and says, that's not going to fix it. God's goal for us is not sin avoidance. It's the transformation of our heart. Becoming the kind of people who just don't want to do the things that hurt God and hurt us and diminish our humanity. We just don't want that lesser life. We just don't want that way. We see the hook, we see the worm, we say, I'm not falling for it. I get where that goes. I've been down that road. I'm done with living that painful reality. And it promises something every time. It does not deliver. This sexual experience is going to be better than the rest. This is going to be better. You keep trying, keep finding. This drug is going to give you a better high. This drug is going to give you a longer high. This drug is going to ultimately satisfy the soul that's yearning. It's not going to happen. It's a bait and a hook, and the evil one is keeping you on the hook all your life. Until Jesus comes along and said, this is a new reality. And you're welcome to enter it. And his point is that something serious, something hellish is happening in our world. And it happens when you start treating another person as an object, as a bunch of body parts. It happens when you say no to God's ultimate reality and authority and you push for your own. And one of the dangers is that, man, I can hear a story like this and I can say, oh, those people over there and those, those countries... Well, I'm not one of those guys. I'm not like those. So I could never, I would never do something like that. See, God's plan was not just to create a group of people who say, oh, I would never do that. I'm not one of those. That's what the Pharisees were doing. That's what the religious people were doing. Oh, I'm not one of those. God's goal was not to create a humanity that avoided sexual violence or adultery. God's goal was a new humanity. It's a brand new us where women and men, this is a quote from John Ortberg, where women and men with transformed hearts would live together in new community in Christ and honor one another like brothers and sisters made in the image of God. 
and to get sexuality right, that's the goal. And I'm so broken, and I'm so far from it that I need a brand new way of living. I need a brand new heart. That's what Jesus is getting at. And to get this right, I'm going to give you just a couple quick, couple quick observations of practices. And then I'm going to come back to this next week, and we're going to just kind of camp out on this whole transformation thing and how that journey begins. And then coming up in the fall, I'm going to be doing a whole series. We're going to just kind of break this whole thing down. I'm really excited about it. We're going to talk about living the way of Jesus. We're going to literally begin practicing the way of Jesus together and just see how this new reality can be formed right here in our midst. But here's what I just, a couple observations. First, I need to make a serious commitment to honor God's standard in the area of my sexuality. I need to make a serious commitment. You need to make a serious commitment that you're going to honor God in the area of your sexuality. When it comes to this, here's the ultimate reality. You have to choose your ultimate reality. What is your go-to when you have to make a decision and you want to come down to the ultimate decision? Where do you, what's the ultimate reality? What's the ultimate stopping? What is the final authority in your life where you go like, oh, oh, you know, I believe that. That's where I'm going to, I'm going to start. My reality starts right there. For some of you, it's the scriptures, and it's God, and it's the words of God, and you're like, that's the ultimate reality. It is like my touchstone. It's the place I go back to. That's home base. If I ever wonder anything, I go look into that. If I ever have a question about something, if I ever struggle with something, I, I have a place to go because I believe that's the ultimate revelation of God to humanity, and that and through Jesus Christ, I can know the truth. I can have ultimate information about most things. Then there are those who say, I reject God's word, the Bible, whatever, the collection of writings we call the Holy Scripture. I reject that. Um, the ultimate authority in my life is my mind, is my understanding, is my desire, is something else. It's maybe this religious teacher. Maybe it's this thing I'm going through. Maybe it's, and you could just come up with the ultimate authority in your life, that place that you ultimately go to when you say, the buck stops here. This is, this is how I decide things. That forms your reality. And what I'm saying that if you do not choose the scriptures and the teachings of Jesus and the ways of God, then you have to form some other reality based on some other ultimate authority. What will it be? And I'm saying if you want to enter into life, the heaven that Jesus was talking about, life in the new kingdom that is now broken into the world and is going to be here entirely when Jesus returns, if you want to live in that reality, then your ultimate, your ultimate reality, the final stopping point of all your truth has got to be God's words, God's scriptures. If you're choosing something else, then you get to choose that with its destination. And the destination of all these other places. If you read, if you watch, if you just listen, if you just look, if you pick up the news, it is brokenness, devastation, and darkness. A country and a people who follow the ways of Jesus always is elevated. It is a blessing and it is blessed. It just is the reality of how it's always been. You watch in history the cultures and the people who worship the one God, Jehovah, and walk with integrity in his ways are the people who live the best lives still to this day. Man, I need to make a serious commitment to this God's way of sexuality. I need to not hear what culture says sex should be and what it's my way over anybody else or what I want, how I feel, or whatever. It's either what God said is the ultimate authority or it's something else. It can't be both. You choose. And I'm telling you, I, I pray that you choose God's way, the kingdom of heaven, 
is only unleashed as you begin to trust him with your sexuality. And let me just say, when I got married 34 years ago, I, I can remember thinking, well, at least I have that to look forward to. Lori and I, you know, we were kids walking, trying to walk with Jesus, and so we decided we we're going to wait till we we're married to have sex, and, and that was like the fight of our lives, but, you know, we did it. And so <clears throat> I was thinking that once I'm married, I mean, this is going to be the best life ever. I mean, there's like, finally, all sex a person could want, and it's kind of like, you know, it's like the e-ticket, all-inclusive fantasy land ride, right? It's like fantasy land for the rest of my life. And then we got married, and, you know, a year later, we had kids. Started having, and we had four, like, pretty quickly. And I, I'm telling you, it, 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 the reality of kids interrupted the reality of fantasy land. And with four kids, it wasn't always fantasy land. A lot of times it felt like tomorrow land. And then it sometimes it felt like never, never land. And I'm like, this reality is not the one that I was thinking I would have. I was going to get married and everything. I'd never be tempted again, never look anywhere. I'd be perfect and satisfied, blah, blah, blah. Hey, I'm just telling you what. Um, getting married does not automatically fix your sexual your urges or desires or yearnings. It doesn't automatically bring spiritual transformation to your sexuality. You have to make a commitment that you're going to surrender to the ways of God and constantly resubmit yourself to his plan. Avoid the hooks that are obviously all around you because he tells you, he defines them for you, he warns you of them, and follow his way with your sexuality. That's the way you do it. And I, I found that Job 31.1 gave me a really practical tool to do this. Job said this as he was reflecting on his life and what he had learned. He said, I, I, I learned this. I made a covenant with my eyes. And that just means an agreement not to look lustfully at a woman. I, I just made a decision, and, and, and I, me and my eyes got together, and we said, hey, eyes, yeah, don't look at that. Let's just agree that we're not going to look over there anymore. We're not going to do that, because it just leads us into other things. That I made an agreement with my eyes. I made a covenant. And th this is what it looks like for me. To, 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 make, to make this commitment to me, it means like, okay, so let's just, for instance, say I'm at the gym, and some little hottie comes in with a very, you know, interesting outfit that's you know interested in showing people what she's developed and and you're just there and it's like your attention is kind of captured for a moment and you're like whoa wait a minute and you go back to what you're doing you're like i want to look again and this person who's made this covenant says wait a minute there's two voices going on there's one that says wait a minute you have a covenant with your wife um that she will be the one to whom and through whom you have your sexuality not only enjoyed but promised to um, and this is kind of one of those things where you, you're starting to look at somebody else that way. And then your other thought goes, but yeah, but if I don't look, I'm going to miss it. She's going to walk out. She's going to leave. And, I'm, and there's a little, you know, sexual charge energy that you get out of this. So, and then the other side says, yes, but don't you want to spend that on the person you love? And there's this little battle that goes on. And as I say, basically, it's like, but, and then there's a follow-up, like, but if you don't, if you choose not to look, if you choose to empower your will right now on behalf of your covenant, there's going to feel like in your life, there's just like a little unleashing, a little explosion of the kingdom life that is beginning to break into your world. The power that you're going to feel of being able to say no to your appetites and no to being a fish with just a mouth, a stomach, and eyes, you're going to be able to say no to the temptation and the hook. And there's an empowerment there. There's like this freedom there. There's excitement. Because lust promises freedom. But what it is, it's just an appetite. See a bug, want a bug, eat a bug. Lust 
doesn't give you freedom. It gives you bondage. You're a slave. There's always a hook. Catch this. Real freedom is not the external freedom to gratify every appetite. It's the internal freedom not to be enslaved by my appetite. I want to honor God's standards for my sexuality, and I need his help. Second thing, I need to make a serious commitment to live a deeply satisfying life in Jesus. And here's my point here. That if Jesus offers life to the fullest, that you begin to pursue what does that mean? That you make it your goal to step into the life that Jesus said is truly life. That you get in community of people who are pursuing the ways of God and discovering how to apply that. That you make it a priority that you're going to be in the places where you get that sense of God is here and God is alive and God is at work. That you literally put your, yourself in the path of God so you're going to like, I'm going to get run over by God. I'm going to be right in the middle of what he's doing. I'm going to get myself invested in this. I want to live in the reality of God's work and will. I'm going to make a commitment to live a deeply satisfying life. Because what I've learned is this. Why do really smart people do really dumb things? I mean, people with really high IQs that can see that other people have bit that and that it is a hook and that it destroys, and yet they do it anyway. Why do really intelligent people bite the same hook over and over and over? And what I've come to is this, just my take on it. I think we become vulnerable to lust when we're dissatisfied with our lives. And the deeper our dissatisfaction, the deeper our vulnerability because we were made for soul satisfaction. And that's what God has come to deliver. And as we close today, my guess is that somebody here has sought that satisfaction, that soul-filling joy, that life, that that experience that was truly life. You've sought that in ways that have left you guilty, frustrated, embarrassed, shamed, maybe even feeling like one of those people on that group, the sinners. Can I tell you that you're in good company? We're all there. As the band comes to lead us in a final song, I want to lead you in a prayer because Jesus said, the sun, when the sun sets somebody free, they're free indeed. You confess your sins, I'll forgive them. If you turn from your sins, I'll give you a new life. And if that's something you're interested in, I want to pray over you. If you Maybe you've already invested yourself in that, but you're looking for, I want to take the next step. Then I'm going to invite you to make those covenants today. Let's pray. God, as we wrap up this morning, wow, sexuality, man, it's the greatest thing. I just love that you created all this. I love that you created appetites within us, that we yearn for stuff but that you gave us a place to express them, and that's, it's beautiful. And God, I, I love that you invited us into life that is truly life, and whether we're single or married or whatever, you've invited us all to experience fullness of life. And that if we pursue you, and if we trust you, and if we make your will our home, if we make the reign of God the place where we live, make you our ultimate authority, we can experience this life here and now. I'm praying for everybody who here is struggling today, Lord God, and wants to have that life. For everybody who's asking forgiveness for a past, everybody's asking for cleansing from their shame, and everybody's asking for a hope for their future, that God today, they would receive it. And if that's you, let's pray. God, forgive me. God, heal me. God, teach me what it is to walk in the life 
that you promised would bring real life, teaching. I turn from what I was believing, I make you my ultimate authority, and I covenant with you, Lord God. I, I know I won't be perfect, but I, I'm covenanting. I'm making a commitment to you. Walk and follow me. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, folks, stand with me. We're going to sing one last song. Don't forget, come back next week for the wrap-up. Let's sing together.
Thank you for joining us today, church. Have a great week. We'll see you next Sunday.